Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. Um, so the season of Lent started a little over two weeks ago, February 14th, um, not quite two weeks ago, sorry, on Valentine's Day. I had a chance to go that evening with three of my friends to an Ash Wednesday service. Um, Ash Wednesday service isn't Catholic. Catholics don't own the Ash Wednesday service. I had to clarify that with a lot of people. I didn't grow up going to Ash Wednesday services. I went to my first one last year, and um, it is, and I know I say this a lot, it is my favorite, it is my favorite service of the year. And it was a huge blessing and gift that night at Church of the Apostles, an Anglican church plant that we support. You know, the whole purpose of Lent is to help us grieve deeply our sin, remember our mortality, so that we long for the resurrection hope of Easter, which points to the new heavens and new earth, where we will live and reign with God forever. And I love how Chuck DeGroote in his Lent devotional says this, Ash Wednesday may be the most formative day of my year. When I was young, I remember Ash Wednesday as a rather morbid affair. I recall it as a day when pastors hammered the message of human sinfulness into our stubborn ears. And you may think, even on a regular Sunday, if we're hammering the message of human sinfulness, this is like an unenjoyable, unfruitful activity. But then he says this, no one ever told me. No one ever told me about the power of these words. All are from the dust, and to dust all return No one ever told me that Lent was an invitation to rest. Jesus came down, you see, to the dust, in the flesh. And so you no longer need to prove yourself or protect yourself. There is no ladder to climb, no stairway to the pearly gates, no performance strategy, no purity ritual, only surrender, only rest. I felt that that evening, and I feel it regularly when... God's kindness by his spirit enables me, as we reference in the baptism, to lift my mind on things that are above. For thinking about our mortality, our coming death, and eternity is not meant to depress us, but rather to open our eyes and form our hearts and help us to live with wisdom. As Paul Tripp says in his book on eternity titled Forever, the way for you to begin to experience real life is to face the inescapable reality of death. Rather than depressing you, all the death and impermanence around you is meant to open your eyes and inform your heart. It is meant to call you away from the delusion that this life is all there is. And that's why today, maybe surprisingly at first, in the third week of our Generosity, Grace, and Gratitude sermon series, we chose a passage from the book of Revelation. And our hope and prayer is that this can really lift our eyes to have a more eternal perspective If you're unfamiliar with the book of Revelation, it can feel very weird to read it at first. A friend of mine that I was working out with yesterday said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I said, Revelation 5. He goes, man, the book of Revelation is so weird. I tried to read it and couldn't understand it. And so I said to him, what I'll say also to you is, if you try to read the book of Revelation, which is good, it's in God's word, um, and you're utterly confused, reach out to someone in leadership. We'd love to help you just have a good commentary or study Bible because there are a plethora of awful ones out there. Left Behind series, that whole, it's garbage. 
It really is. The guy who discipled me, I was excited. I had like read that as my first like spiritual book and I thought he was going to be proud of me. And he said, it'd be better for you to throw that in the trash. I thought he was joking. I said, well, I'll just take it to goodwill. He goes, no, 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 you don't want to curse someone else with, with awful <laughs> theology. <laughs> and I agree now. <laughs> um, when you read the book of Revelation, it, it's very different. It's very different than how you read the Gospels, even the Old Testament narratives, the Psalms and others. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that um, Daniel and Ezekiel are similar books in the way that they're written. Um, the original Jewish readers would have been much more familiar with this prophetic form of writing that included a bunch of um, symbols and word pictures. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. He was in exile before his death on an island, and while there, our Lord Jesus gave him a symbolic vision that revealed a heavenly perspective on history in light of its final outcome. And so the opening three chapters of Revelation are warnings to the churches to remain faithful especially in the midst of persecution, to remain faithful in the midst of abundance and apathy, worldliness. And then starting in chapter 4, John is given a vision of the heavenly throne room. And so in chapter 5, we pick up in verse 1, and John says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne of God a scroll written within and on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And so I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they began to sing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, wisdom and might, honor, glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them declaring to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And then they fell down and worshiped. It's the word of the Lord. I feel like I should just sit down and we should just sing, Is He Worthy? by Andrew Peterson. So this vision of the heavenly throne room, all nations, creation, bowing down to the one sovereign king, creator, and sustainer of all things, tells us with a focus that in God's hand is a scroll. 
and that no one is found worthy. There's great emphasis on this scroll. And so what is happening with this scroll? Simon Kistemacher in his commentary says that this scroll reveals God's complete plan and purpose for the entire world throughout all ages from beginning to end. For us, the scroll with its seals is evidence of what God planned for the salvation of his people. This plan is a foreordained mystery, is revealed in the fullness of time, and the contents of the scroll pertain to God's secret purpose of establishing his kingdom on earth until the fullness of his glory is revealed. And so John says that as he observes that no one is remotely worthy on heaven or earth or under the earth to hold and open the scroll, an elder says, you need not weep. For the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered and he alone is worthy. And then John saw a lamb that had been slain standing in the middle of the throne room take the scroll from the hand of God and everyone begins to rejoice. Hopefully if you've been here more than one week, you know that the slain lamb is Jesus our Savior. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what this vision highlights for us is that God's kingdom has been inaugurated through Jesus' death and resurrection. His sacrificial death that conquered evil in the grave. And now he alone is able to open the scroll. And what this signifies is that Jesus, our Savior, who loves us more than we could possibly dare to imagine, is governing and guiding all of human history towards God's glorious end. And so this vision is given to us to remind us of who God is, who we are as his people, and what the truest reality is in human history in such a way that it should radically reorient the way we live our lives. And so a few points that we want to notice. This passage obviously is so packed, we, we cannot remotely do justice to all the meat that is in here. But the first thing we need to notice, and that is, arguably the most obvious, is that God alone is worthy of worship. You may think, well, of course, as a preacher, you have to say that. And it may sound simplistic, but we must remember one of the things we repeatedly remind ourselves of all the time because of our sin nature, we regularly and routinely worship the wrong things. We regularly and routinely worship idols that distort and disorient our lives. As Tim Keller in his amazing book, Counterfeit God, says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, I'll feel my life has meaning. I'll know that I have value. I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways that you can describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. An idol is anything that has a controlling position in your heart so that you can spend most of your passion and energy and emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. If I began reading that quote and you thought this doesn't apply to me, I'm not an idol worshiper, if you listen to the end of it, hopefully it at least enabled you to pause and say, oh Lord, I need your help. If I examine honestly where I spend most of my passion and energy, emotional and financial resources without a second thought, overwhelmingly it might not be in a direction to honor Jesus and seek first his kingdom. This passage reminds us of something that the Bible shows throughout. There is only one true guide, and he alone is worthy of all worship, honor, and praise. It says in verse 11 and 12 that in the throne room, 
that all living creatures, that everything in heaven and earth and under the earth, myriads and myriads, which is ten thousands upon ten thousands and thousands and thousands, are all proclaiming, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive all power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Seven is a significant number throughout the book of Revelation that signifies completeness. What this is communicating is God alone is worthy of everything. And this is the direction that all of human history is moving. Of course, we know that many hate the Lord and would never consider bowing their knee. But Paul reminds us in Romans 14 that the Lord says, Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to the Lord. This is the direction that history is moving. This is what our hearts need most, is to worship the one true God. And then the second point we want to notice is that it tells us that Jesus is receiving worship in many ways because he has done the thing that we celebrate each week. He has shed his blood and redeemed a people for himself. Verses 9, as they sang, they sang, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed, bought, purchased a people for God from every tribe, tongue, language, people, and nation. This is what Paul reminded the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians six nineteen: You are not your own. You were bought with a price. This means that we belong to God. All power we think we have belongs to God. All wealth we think we have belongs to God. All wisdom, strength, honor, glory, every blessing and breath that we take belongs to our Savior King. Now, you can hear and receive that in one of two ways. One, in misery, and think, I don't really like that. I feel like a begrudging slave. If that is the knee-jerk reaction of your heart, it flows out of an unbelievably sad and distorted view of the heart of God, who is a gracious and wise and loving Father. Or, hopefully, you can receive that with overwhelming shock and awe, amazing grace. How can that be? Oh, Lord, I am astonished at the difference in my receiving and my deserving, that I, of all people, could be loved so much by you that you shed your blood to purchase me. This reality means that I belong to you. My life is now hidden with Christ in God. The implications are endless and overwhelmingly powerful. If this is true, I don't have to worry about my life. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, our first sermon in this series, I don't have to worry about what I will eat, drink, where, or when, and how I will die because Christ loved me enough to shed his blood and conquer death in the grave and give us the promise that even though you die, if you believe in me, yet you shall live forever. I don't have to live in fear and anxiety because God is in control and he has a plan. This scroll contains his plans and they are in the hands that were nailed to the cross for you and for me. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 8, we know that all things are going to work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. I know that can be utterly abused and misused. 
And it can easily be dismissed in light of the current circumstances that we're facing. And Paul doesn't say, anchor your heart in this promise based on how you interpret your current circumstances. But no, anchor your heart in this promise because in verse 31, what shall we say to all of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And that is one of the things that all creatures are celebrating and worshiping about the lamb who was slain is that he is, in fact, going to give us all things. Verses 10, you have made them a kingdom and priest to God, and they shall reign with you on the earth. One of the staggering declarations of the Bible is that God's people don't have to live and, and store up treasures on earth where moth and rust and thieves steal and destroy because God's going to give us the entire creation. He's going to give us more than we could ever possibly imagine. That's why Paul says there's no eye that is seen nor ear that is heard nor the heart of man even begun to grasp or imagine what is coming for those who belong to the king of kings. We are for an absolute fact as God's redeemed, purchased, and chosen people going to reign with him on earth for all eternity. If this is true, why are we anxious about the stock market? If this is true, why are we so worried about our bodies aging? If this is true, why are we freaking out about whether or not our kids get into a certain school? If this is true, listen to me, church, why are we freaking out about who gets selected in November? You know how many times we're going to be told in the coming months, this is the most important election of your life. If this person get elect, gets elected, our country's ruined. If this person gets elected, our country's ruined. Jesus is on the throne. He's not freaking out. I'm, 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 I'm saying we, we, we have such an unreal opportunity to testify as a city set on a hill to the world around us that is freaking out in every way. Hey, our hope isn't in any Democrat or Republican or Independent or anybody else, but Jesus, who is our sovereign king. We don't have to live in anxiety and fear. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and people plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord who sits in the heavens and he laughs. He holds them in derision. So what does this mean for us? If you're wondering about, oh, what is the practical implication for me or the, the question that the great theologian Francis Schaeffer would often ask, how shall we then live? Verse 10 gives the answer. You have made them a kingdom and priest to our guide. So that's the answer. Okay, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. So go be priest. <laughs> like what? <laughs> be a priest. If you were here two years ago, or, guys, if you had the added bonus and luxury and blessing to go to the Hebrews Bible study that Tripp taught every week, hopefully you have a better grasp. When we studied the book of Hebrews, it overwhelmingly is like a commentary on the Old Testament priesthood. And what do we know? If we want to boil it down in the simplest terms, what was the role of priest? To offer sacrifices. Which is why Jesus, our great high priest, when he offered the sacrifice of himself, it was the once-for-all sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Translation. We have been made a kingdom of priests. That means because our hearts are invited to rest in the sovereign rule and reign of our king and savior, we can go out and instead of thinking, I have to get, get, consume, acquire, 
we can open-handedly, with hearts of gratitude and joy, sacrifice for the glory of God and the good of others. And what's the surprising thing that happens when we live this way? When we live with a sacrificial mindset, when we live with a mindset that says, Lord, every aspect of my life, every breath I have, every talent, resource, treasure, opportunity is something you've given to me to use for your glory and the good of my neighbor. Oh, what a blessing. And the overwhelming, shocking reality is even though we live in a world that says the surest way to pursue happiness is to live for yourself, treat yourself over and over again, when we actually follow our Savior King who says it's more blessed to give than to receive, we experience great happiness. It's actually scientifically proven. Okay, so in case you didn't know this, we are pro-science all day long. All science can ever do is affirm what God has said is true and the way he set up and organized his world to work. So this week, Sid Druin, who's our pastor of community groups, sent me a podcast. I put it in your bulletin. If you notice, I hope y'all look at these suggested resources. I put them in there for a reason. If you don't, don't tell me you don't look at them because it'll hurt my feelings. <laughs> so this podcast called The Happiness Lab, I'd never heard of it before, but Sid is a voracious reader and consumer of information. He devours podcasts and books. So this Happiness Lab is taught by, it's a podcast um, by Dr. Laurie Santos, who's a professor at Yale University, and she teaches a class on happiness. And it is the most popular class in the 300-year history of Yale. And all she does is says, let's follow the science on how we can maximize our happiness and well-being. And so this particular episode from season two, and I think it's April of 2022, is called Psychopaths and Superheroes, which is a funny name, right? And she starts out, she interviews this lady named Dr. Abigail Marsh. And this lady has been fascinated with why altruist, right? To be an altruist means that you sacrifice um, yourself for the good of others in some capacity. She's been fascinated throughout her career to know why. Like factually, scientifically, why with so much violence and evil and just chaos in the world, do some people do good things for others that don't make sense? And again, we all have stories. It comes out of her story. When she was 19, got in a wreck on the interstate, got spun around, was convinced she was going to die, and a complete stranger risked his life to save her. And that set her on this journey of, I need to know why. And so she started wondering, is there any way to factually study and prove that people are different and why they do good things and good deeds? So she started with, let me study the population who clearly doesn't do it, psychopaths. And she went in prisons and studied psychopaths and how they respond to other people's needs and other people's fears. And then she went and studied kidney donors, She's like, arguably the greatest altruistic deed you could do is to give away an organ in your body to a stranger you don't know, right? And what she noticed is that the amygdala in the brain, right, your amygdala, which is, is in your brain, and it actually controls the way your body processes emotions and responds to different fear and happiness, that the people who gave away their kidneys had larger amygdalas. So she wondered, were they born this way? And then science shows, no, they weren't born this way that your amygdala can actually grow the more you actually do deeds of generosity for others. And then she said she was blown away by every single kidney donor she interviewed. The, the most consistent theme that she experienced was how humble they were, and they kept telling her, we're not any different. There's nothing special about us. Boy, we have so much happiness doing this for others. And so then she interviewed a lady named Liz Dunn who wrote a book called Happy Money. And the whole purpose of her book is how can you spend your money to make yourself most happy? 
And overwhelmingly, 100%, her research showed that people who spend their money on others are significantly happier than those who spend it on themselves. And she went and studied people all over the world, seven different continents. She went and studied even people in a village in South Africa that struggled to have food for their family had more joy when given money and they spent it on others. So she said, I'm going to do a, a kind of experiment in America to see if this is right. Because everything's telling us to spend money on ourselves. So they went out and they got thousands of people and they gave them, well, first they interviewed them and they said, if somebody gave you money unexpectedly and told you to spend it, um, how would it make you happy? To spend it on yourself or someone else? And 75% of the people said, spend it on myself would make me happy. And she divided it up in half and said, you have to spend it on yourself. You have to spend it on others. And at the end of the day, they interviewed every single person, and 100% of the people that spent their money on someone else had longer sustained, scientifically verifiable happiness than those who spent it on themselves. So she's like, what in the world? I can't wrap my mind around this. So she goes and meets with a child psychologist and says, I want to know if this shows up in kids. So they brought two-year-olds in, and she said, we gave them the two-year-old version of money, goldfish, <laughs> which is what we do, right? We give kids goldfish. They gave them goldfish, they observed, and then they told half of the kids, you have to give your goldfish to someone else. And she said, I was fully expecting freak out, screaming, crying, I don't want to do that. But instead, because they were forced to do it, those kids showed over the course of the entire school day, long-term sustained happiness compared to those who just ate their goldfish themselves. And she said, th this is what's amazing, Dr. Liz Dunn says, kids smiled more and were happier when they gave away goldfish to others. With as much division, anger, and hatred as we see in the world, this gives me so much hope. Tiny humans start with this proclivity to experience happiness when they practice generosity towards others. And so Dr. Lori Santos says this, all of the data points to the indisputable fact that we would all be happier if we were more generous, if we lived more priestly, if we sacrificed more for the good of others, but our lying minds, I love this, she didn't have a category for original sin, so she just kept saying our lying minds. That's the phrase she just made up. Our lying minds keep telling us to spend our money on ourselves. This is what it means overwhelmingly to give your life away as a priest because you've been purchased by God, you're going to receive the whole world, and God wants you because he loves you to be happier than you could ever be on your own. And so as I finish, we have another video to show you of a young man from South End even sharing a little bit about what this has been like in his own story. So tell me if you'll go ahead and play that. My name is Dalton Malaby. I've been at Hope since the summer of 2021. What I love about Hope is that it's a community of people who are going through life together. It is a Bible study. It is a time for us to all get together and talk about God's word. It's a place where I've grown a lot. Um, I've gotten to meet so many people. People stay, people grow through their lives together. And it's just been so fun to, to share and celebrate and mourn and just get excited about all the things that God's doing. I met my now fiance through the church. I uh, serve on the worship team. And so I used to not even feel comfortable playing music in front of like more than one person. And now I'm leading congregations. And all those have come from just the sort of comfort of, of the family sort of aspect of, of what Hope has to offer. Um, it's just been such a comfortable environment for me to come into and, and learn and grow. 
I choose to give to hope because it's a way to, to glorify the Lord. I mean, hope has given me so much. It just makes me want to give hope more. Prior to going to hope um, and being involved in Christian ministry, I, I wasn't a giver. I was, if anything, a material saver and somebody who judged my life based on how much I accumulated and how much I had. Going to Hope and learning what Jesus has to say about giving gave me a completely different perspective on what money is for and how you can steward it well. Uh, and it's just been a paradigm shift for me of thinking about what I uh, earn as, as an object. And it's, it's really God's object to use how he will. I, it just has fundamentally changed the way I think about money uh, and what it's for. As I look to the future here at Hope, I'm just excited to be seeing our church body grow and our community uh, just become even closer. I'm excited to see my own life change in a number of ways, uh, to get married, to grow in that, uh, to learn what that looks like alongside people who have already experienced and walked that path before me. I'm excited to uh, welcome others into the church uh, who were at a similar place or who are at a similar place that I was um, and to kind of help and, and mentor and coach them where that might make sense. And I'm excited to welcome others into the church. God's word when spoken clearly, I think through a congregation has a, has a way of attracting more people to it. Jesus, thank you that you have purchased us, that we belong to you. You tell us in John chapter 10, verse 28, that nothing and no one can ever snatch us out of your hand. Thank you that you hold the scroll that contains all of God's plans throughout human history in your nail-scarred hands. I pray that you'll help our hearts to trust you, to have more rest, and to experience more joy. Help us to live as priests, eager to sacrifice for your glory and the good of others and be surprised over and over and over again by the joy that we receive because this is the way that you have created us to live. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you sacrificed yourself for us because of how loved we are. You are worthy of all worship, honor, and praise. Press that deeper in our heart even as we stand and respond now. In Christ's name I pray, amen.